You're listening to Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com. I'm your host, Jim Dudley. Well, the First Amendment is all about freedoms, including the right of the people peaceably to assemble. Well, peaceably being the operative word here. So what are law enforcement agencies to do when the demonstrations or protests turn to full-blown riot? Well, today we have a guest to talk about what we can learn from protests and actions in Los Angeles, Portland, Columbus. He's an author and professor of criminal justice and has co-authored with others for the National Police Foundation on what we should be doing to better place police uh, and to police demonstrations and protests before, during, and after. His experience is vast. Dr. Straub has a PhD from the City University of New York. He's been the public safety commissioner of New York the Director of Public Safety in Indianapolis, the Chief of Police for Spokane, Washington, a non-resident fellow at the West Point U.S. Military Academy, and is currently with the Police Foundation as the Director of Center for Mass Violence Response Studies. He's written findings of protests and demonstrations and police response, including a report on the LAPD riots regarding the George Floyd incident. Please welcome Dr. Frank Straub. Thanks for joining us today, doctor. Great, well, thank you very much for having me. So your police foundation report on evaluating the LAPD response to riots was released in June, 2020, and yet many of the issues remain relating to training, leadership, planning, communications, and tactics. Uh, what's, what's your big, Takeaway: What what's the cornerstone of this report? What should chiefs be thinking about from from here on? Yeah, so I think you know it was really a privilege to be able to do the review and interact with the women and men in the LAPD and and the leadership of of the LAPD. As all of your listeners know, the LAPD has been recognized not only nationally but I think internationally. Uh, for many of the progressive steps they've taken to help move policing forward. And, and I would argue they're really a learning organization in many ways. So I think, you know, that's an important thing for, for police leaders, right? That we want to learn from events. We want to use those events as the catalyst uh, to help move our departments forward. And I think, you know, again, there's a history of that in the LAPD. We saw it after the Rodney King riots. That there was a commission that was um, put forward and, and the police foundation actually um, participated in a review of that event and, and issued a report. Um, and we saw some fundamental changes implemented in the LAPD. Um, after the May Day riots, when um, Bill Bratton was, was the chief, again, we saw a very thorough examination of that event and, and changes made. And then, you know, jumping ahead to the most recent uh, events post George Floyd, we again see the city asking for a review. In this case, there were three reviews. There was an internal NYPD, excuse me, LAPD report, um, um, there was a report by the National Police Foundation and then um, a former um, head of constitutional policing um, and his group were asked to do uh, a report as well and, and look at the LAPD's response. So I think, you know, this 
series of protests, First Amendment events, um, in some cases riots, near riots, um, was very different than what we've seen in the past. And I think it's something that caught the LAPD by surprise and it caught many other police departments by surprise. Um, I think that this was one of the first times where we really saw the police as the subject of the protests. And I think that many police leaders and agencies and even city leaders for that matter, never expected to see the level of violence and, um, and anger and frustration come to their cities. Um, they recognized that it was gonna happen in Minneapolis. I think everybody anticipated protests but they didn't really anticipate the level of, um, of anger that was gonna come with the protests in, in other cities. And so I think that caught many police departments off guard, right? They expected that people would come, they would request maybe a permit, um, they could be very large protests, um, but I think everybody outside of Minneapolis was thinking that they were going to be fairly orderly um, and, and fairly peaceful and that they would abide by um, what has become the norms of, of protest and, and managing crowds. And what we saw is that that very quickly, um, you know, went in a very different direction. And so we saw acts of violence directed at the police. We saw acts of violence directed at citizens in, in LA and other cities. We saw um, extensive property damage, we saw looting, um, and we saw violence even within the protest. Um, you know, different groups and factions um, vying to have their voices heard. And I think that piece of it, particularly in late May, uh, you know, typically in, in LA and some of the other cities, it was like the 27th, 28th, 29th were really, the heaviest um, days and evenings of protests. And I think it took a, a little bit for the departments to realize what was happening, to reorient themselves, to get available um, personnel and equipment on scene and in, in LA and other cities to multiple scenes, right? It wasn't just a protest in one given area. We saw protests popping up in, in various areas of the city um, getting mobile field forces mobilized um, and deployed quickly. So there were a, a number of issues, I think, that really strained um, and challenged police leaders in LA and, and other cities within those first three, four days of the protests. Mm -hmm. Is, are the strategies still a moving target? I'm, I'm glad you re referenced the LAPD riots of, in response to the Rodney King verdict. And what did we learn then that uh, Daryl Gates, the chief at the time, decided to sort of stand down the, the visual um, presence of police so as not to infuriate the public, but that sort of backfired when, like you say, they, they got caught flat-footed with no equipment, right, to deal with it. Mm -hmm. And then we saw just this year in January on the steps of the Capitol that, um, the intelligence was maybe minimized, that the military uh, support was denied because of, quote, optics. So 
whether we're ready or not, it seems like the it's still a moving target. Is it better to over prepare and have that visual that may not look so great? Or is it better to keep keep that low profile in response to a, a planned event? Right. I think you need a, a tiered response, right? Um, I, I think the first attempt should be around dialogue, should be around um, de-escalation. It should be around trying to identify who the leaders are and, and coming to a compromise um, where everybody's allowed to voice their First Amendment rights, but do so in a, um, in a safe manner, right? In, in a manner that doesn't cause destruction of property or, or injury. Um, I think behind that though, right, there has to be a recognition, particularly as, as we're seeing in events unfold, that that may not happen. Um, the individual actors within um, the protest may decide that they're going to escalate the situation, that they're going to um, commit acts of violence, they're going to destroy property. Um, and, and so when that happens, you need to be able to um, very quickly um, control that group, um, try to extricate the leaders of that group from the crowd um, to prevent further um, agitation and, and injury. Um, so you need those mobile field forces that are ready to go. Um, and, and, you know, I don't know that you can ever over prepare for these events. Um, but to some degree, the response to protests starts well before the protests. And it's interesting, you know, the um, South Bureau was really the, um, the scene of the, um, the Rodney King protests and the riots. And, and, and that whole area was decimated. In the post-George Floyd um, space, there were really no protests in the Southern Bureau of L.A., um, and, and in fact, um, in talking to community members as well as law enforcement officials there, they said that it was really because they had some very <clears throat> longstanding, well-built relationships with the community. And one of the um, LAPD leaders who, who was involved in the South Bureau said that um, there was a kind of pop-up protest that was being planned. And, and they got a call from a community member who said, hey, we're coming down and we're going to surround um, the police building to make sure nobody gets hurt and none of your vehicles get damaged. And so, you know, that that relationship building, um, that engagement with the community in many ways um, prevented um, serious protest and, and property destruction in the South Bureau. And then, it, it, it played out in the Western Bureau as, as well. Um, so I think protest planning and, 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 and all of that begins pre-protest. When the protests start, I think we have to have that immediate engagement um, by persons in duty uniforms. Um, and then we have to be prepared with mobile field forces and other resources um, to move very quickly to, um, to limit the amount of, of damage. So, so is that an outcome from the report? I've heard um, one of our previous guests, Yael Bartour, is a uh, social media expert and communications for police agencies. And she says just essentially what you said is that 
you've got to, it's like a bank. You've got to keep making these deposits of goodwill in your community long before these sort of flashpoint events. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think one of the other things that came out of our report when you talk about social media is across the country, the protesters really use social media to their advantage. They used it to organize the protest, to bring people to the protest, to manage logistics, um, to put out information, sometimes obviously intentionally erroneous information. Um, we, on the other side, the police um, and elected officials did a very poor job of creating a narrative, putting the narrative out there, um, providing timely and accurate information, dispelling rumors um, and, and false information. And so really the protesters controlled <clears throat> the conversation in many ways. And I think that's an area that not only in LA, but across the country, we, we need to recognize um, that more and more the days of traditional me media are going by the wayside. Mm -hmm. um, and that really much of our conversation is happening and much of our information gathering is happening via social media. And so police agencies and elected, elected officials um, really need to be thinking about what's my narrative? How do I get it out there? How do I communicate? How do I dispel rumors uh, amidst crisis? And, and, and that was one of our biggest recommendations to, to the LAPD and, and other departments that we've been working with. Yeah, so we have LAPD, we have Minneapolis, we have Columbus, we have New York. Uh, cities across the country experience fallout from these incidents that happen all over the country, and yet the protests happen locally. And in Portland, they, they'd gone something like 100 days of protests. So since March of last year, when you made your report, I mean, that was you know coincidentally right in the timeline with the kickoff to COVID, right? So going in the future, can we go back to March 2020 and make a line in the sand and say, this is where it changed? Or, or was 2020 a, a, an aberration? Was it COVID influenced and influenced with the new presidency and just this the spiraling up of, you know, the resistance to government? Or, or can we expect things to sort of return to normal now? Yeah, I, I think that the 2020 was certainly unique, right? It was certainly the perfect storm in, in many ways. Um, that being said, though, I, I think we have seen the beginning of a new era of protest. Mm. I, I really believe that. And um, a new era of communities um, giving voice to, in some cases, embers that have been burning below the surface for for many, many years and, and, and decades. Um, and I think we need to realize that, right? And that means that we have to be, we have to be quicker, I think, right? We, we um, I remember when Bill Bratton took over the uh, NYPD years ago, right? Um, he was in a conversation with somebody about changing the culture and the dynamics of the NYPD. And they said, well, that's like changing, a, turning a battleship in a bathtub and right, just physically impossible in some ways. 
But really, that's what we have to do. We have to be thinking about how are we going to change and adapt our organizations? How are we going to increase our situational awareness? How are we going to see, you know, these waves coming so that when they hit the beach, we're ready for them and, and we can respond to them? I think that's going to be one of the critical pieces of this and, and really having um, our fingers on the pulse, not only of our local communities, but nationally and, and recognizing that what happens in Minneapolis can happen in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and it can happen in LA and it can happen in Tampa, Florida, that there really isn't a community that's necessarily immune um, from, from protest. And, and, you know, sadly, I think very um, aggressive protests going forward. Yeah, and I mean, you bring up a good point with social media influence. And I'm wondering, are these larger, more, I want to say violent, because, you know, we don't hardly ever hear about the peaceful protests. We only hear about the violent ones. But are they a result of societal shift or or do we have some actors organizing using social media? I mean, we talk about Antifa all the time, and we've been dealing with Antifa for 20 years in San Francisco, um, long before the you know, Occupy Wall Street uh, demonstrations. And we've seen them uh, become more of an actor who, who have organized these things. Are, are these protests, these high profile protests and demonstrations and riots, are they organized by a group or is it is it organically social reaction? I think it's a combination of both, right? I, I think when we talk again about the uniqueness of 2020, I think the national electoral process was so highly charged and so highly polarized um, that, that that put tremendous strain on the, on, the, on the system, so to speak, right? Yeah. But that being said, um, you know, the attack on the Capitol demonstrates that um, there are these groups, um, and I think we're learning more and more that there are connections between the groups um, that have a national presence that are able to use that national presence to mobilize local groups, um, whether they're far left or far right or somewhere in between um, for action. And, and I think, as I said earlier, I think those groups use social media incredibly well to, to mobilize um, people. I mean, look at, look at the attack on the Capitol, right? I mean, we know that there were, months, um, certainly weeks of um, social media discussions, encouraging people to, to come to Washington, um, to come to Washington in some cases with some very nefarious and sad intentions. Um, and, and then we saw the manifestation of that on, uh, on January 6th. Yeah, we have. And I'd like to get into that. I'd like to talk a little bit about use of force. But first, I'd like to take a break and thank our sponsor. PoliceOne.com is the number one resource for your up-to-the-minute law enforcement news, training, and incident analysis. 
Our mission is to provide you with the information you need to better protect your communities and your safety. Becoming a Police One member is quick, easy, and free. Once registered, you will receive access to secure law enforcement-only training and video tips, articles and sections, and a subscription to our award-winning law enforcement newsletters. Go to policeone.com forward slash registration to sign up today. That's policeone, the number one, dot com forward slash registration. And we're back with Dr. Frank Straub former chief professor and current director of the Center for Mass Violence Response Studies at the National Police Foundation. And we're talking about these demonstrations that get out of hand. Should we over plan for them? Should we have a pace plan where we have alternates and uh, emergency plans? Well, use of force may be the most important consideration in managing a large demonstration that turns to riot. And with so many levels of force uh, restricted from, we've seen over this past year, especially carotid holds have been outlawed by uh, many agencies, uh, less lethal munitions, tear gas in New York, even the body weight of an officer on a restrained individual may be deemed a misdemeanor offense, whether or not the, the suspect is injured. So how can an agency deal with crowds bent on destruction? And now, I mean, the, just this month, uh, there's been a, a federal judge who in Columbus said um, these types of uh, uses of force that you're using shall no longer be used. And some of these are just tactics. Some are kettling, surrounding, and, and parsing off pieces of crowds. And we have a federal judge saying no. So what's an agency to do? Yeah, I think it's becoming an a extremely difficult operating environment. Um, but I'm going I'm to go back a little bit to that narrative, right? I think a few things, a few things happen. I think that we have to do a better job again, in that pre-protest period now, if you will, engaging with the communities that we serve and getting them involved in the conversation and really having very clear rules of engagement, right? So if you do this and you protest peacefully and you abide by Here's the, the policies and procedures and laws of the city and the state. We're good to go. If you start to engage in violent activities, destruction of property, then this is going to be the response that you're going to see from the police. And I think understanding those ground rules right up front make a big difference, right? Because then you can't say, well, I'm surprised by... The police activity because you knew the police activity was going to come. Mm. I also think, though, sadly, that we're going to have to invest some time and money in preparing officers better to, to be in these um, crowd management uh, positions. We saw in, in several cities where officers hadn't been trained in mobile field force operations for five plus years. Mm. We saw people that hadn't been on, a, on the street or in uniform in 20 years being deployed in a mobile field force. We saw people that hadn't received recent training or any training at all 
um, being assigned less lethal 37 millimeter, 40 millimeter um, um, munitions, right? And, and then deploying those munitions without the proper training. And, and sadly, we all know, um, historically, we can go back to Boston and the, the, you know, the Red Sox World Championship or World Series uh, win there. And the, the young woman who was killed um, when she was shot in the face with a pepper ball gun, not intentionally, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but we have to be very careful and intentional around these, the use of these instruments, right? Um, kettling in and of itself is not a bad thing, but we found in some cities is the crowds were told to disperse, but they were completely surrounded by the police. Mm. So there was no place for them to go, right? Mm. So one of the principles, fundamental principles, for example, in hostage negotiations is you always give the hostage taker a way out, right? It may not be the way out that they want, but you're giving them the opportunity to get out of the situation they're currently in. Well, if you tell people to disperse, but there's no avenue by which they can disperse, what are you doing, right? You're exacerbating the problem. Um, When you have changes of curfews going on within, you know, several hour periods. So we're going to declare the curfew at eight o'clock. Well, we're going to move it to nine o'clock. No, it's going to be 10 o'clock. Well, we just moved it back to nine o'clock. Well, that causes confusion for the officers. And it also causes confusion for the protesters. And we heard, again, in some of our reviews that the protesters could see that the police were confused. Mm. They didn't know when the curfew was and how they should enforce it because it kept changing and moving. We saw elected officials in, in some cases change the rules of engagement to, around the use of, of chemical munitions, not in LA, but in, in other cities. Well, making those changes midstream is really a very difficult process, right? And, and I think that there has to be a better explanation that we use certain techniques, we use less lethal tools, for example, because we don't want to go hands on, mm-hmm. right? We, we don't want to be in a situation where we're having officer to protester contact, physical contact. We, we want to avoid that because that increases the opportunity for, for serious injury. And so uh, in an ideal situation, the police should be able to give a lawful order and it should be followed, right? Um, But in those cases where it isn't, we have to give the police the tools to be able to disperse crowds that that are dangerous to themselves as well as everybody else. Sure, and you you bring up a good point where you know, when, when people do a study or an after action report of, of something that went sideways, an event that went sideways, or you have a federal judge opining from a bench, uh, I can hear some of our listeners uh, shouting at their, their headset that, yeah, well, we give the dispersal order three times. And of course, people in the back can't hear it because the protesters know we're going to do it. So they ramp up their chants or they're shouting and they they try to drown out the dispersal order or 
in a Ketiline situation or an encirclement, we do leave an avenue of exit, which may end up turning into an avenue of escape by the uh, agitators. And then now, you know, you we're split, our forces are split and we're chasing, you know, separated uh, groups of, of agitators in this cat and mouse game. I've been there, I've done that, right? So, um, Who's who's bringing those arguments to the federal judge or to your local municipalities, your mayors, your city councils to say, hey, wait a minute, I mean, we're doing the best we can. And yet we end up, you know, getting vilified in these these after action reports What should we have um, observers from city government on hand to, to sit on the, the law enforcement side to, sh to show what they're dealing with? Well, I think that's I think that's an important piece of the reviews, right? Is you know you have subject matter experts, and and when we do a review, we bring subject matter experts from the community side, as well as from the law enforcement side, so that we can have um, a very balanced approach, right? Mm -hmm. So that we show all sides of, of the argument. Um, but I think, yes, I think it's important that, you know, big organizations like the International Chiefs of Police Association, um, you know, the um, Fraternal Organization of Police on a national level, um, our organization, the Police Executive Research Forum, CALIA, um, the, the, you know, um, accreditation body, there needs to, to be, I think, um, conversations in terms of how do we do this better? How do we do this right? Um, what does it look like on a national level? What, what really are the best practices now, right? Mm. Um, what are the potential emerging practices out there? Um, and how can we come together and, and opine around them? And how do we say, okay, here's the, here's the munition that we think is the best one, or these are the mm. best munitions, but shouldn't we also have training standards that, that go with that, right? Um, and, and shouldn't there be some expectation that departments are going to um, hold to those training standards? Mm -hmm. The problem comes now, we're in this era of defund the police or take huge sections of the police budget, right? And, and when people raise that issue with me, I, I say, well, it's, you don't necessarily make things better by taking things away. You make things better by holding people accountable and being transparent and give them the tools to be the professionals that you want them to be, right? So when you look at what happens in police budgeting, when a budget gets cut, what's the first thing that goes? Training, right? Training goes every single time. It's the first thing out the door because we consider it a luxury. But it, it doesn't really make sense because we require our mental health professionals to get continuing education. We require lawyers to get continuing education credits, right? doctors to renew their board certifications periodically. I just had a, a friend of mine who's a psychiatrist who had to take her boards because she's been practicing for, for 10 years or renew her boards. But when it comes to policing, 
we have a very different expectation, right? We, we think, well, okay, you've gone through basic training, you go to the range, and if you don't have any money to do anything else, well, it is what it is. But yet we want professional high-level services to come to us when we call 911. Well, in order to keep those services the best that they can be, we have to have the opportunity for officers to engage in training mm-hmm. and, and, and to engage in the latest training. And unfortunately, in some people's perceptions, that costs money. But we, we, we don't want a doctor operating on us who isn't well-versed in current surgical procedures. You know, if you went to your surgeon and, and you had to have your ACL repaired and you said, when's the last time you did one of these surgeries? And they said, oh, well, I don't really do those surgeries. The last one I did was six or seven years ago. You'd say, well, I think I'll go to a different surgeon, right? Well, if you call the police and the police officer shows up and you say, well, when's the last time you, you trained on your taser? And they said, oh, God, it's been probably 20 years since I got trained in my taser. You'd be like, oh, my God, I'm, I'm in trouble here, right? So if we want the surgeon who's going to repair our ACL to have the latest and best training and be able to use robotics or whatever the case may be, shouldn't we want that for the police officers who are responding at the height of crisis to to have the best training and tools available to them to resolve the issue without an excessive use of force? No, you're absolutely right. And we can see in uh, large cities, and I'm sure the trickle down to small cities, more than half of American police agencies are small agencies with under 50 officers probably. When you cut significantly from the budgets, I mean, it's a recipe for disaster. I I could write the next after action uh, chapter right now by saying, when you defunded by X amount, you cut X amount, just as you say, the training, the physical personnel, the equipment. Uh, so it's it, it's this tug and pull where you say, okay, we want to defund the police because we don't want, we don't like what you're doing. So we cut the budget by, in some agencies, it's 50 million, 200 million. And I think in New York, de Blasio says something like a billion dollars. I mean, if we think that upwards of 80% or more are personnel costs, think about where that money is coming from. And the attrition, so you've got fewer officers to deal with these things. And their last resort is force options, like less lethal munitions. So what's the answer moving forward? Will we will we be hearing some recommendations from the Department of Justice? You mentioned PERF and IACP and major city chiefs and FOPs. But when, rather than a critic, when is the DOJ, the Department of Justice, going to say, okay, here's the answer, here's the funding, here's the money. I, I, I do think, I, I do see some hope with, with DOJ. Um, I, I think that they have put in place um, some very sound leaders and, and people with years of experience and, and people that are really well-respected, right? Um, we look at um, Ms. Gupta, who, who now is in charge of, of the Civil Rights Division, who, who got endorsements from 
um, major police organizations and labor police labor organizations, right? So I think we have good people at the helm, um, people that have been there before who, who have an understanding of this business. Um, I think there's a twofold message, right? I think that the message is we're going to hold you accountable. We're going to expect transparency. Um, but I also see an awful lot of money now coming to local police departments um, to improve training through, through federal grants, um, significant police hiring dollars uh, out there. So I'm hopeful um, that the federal government as a whole and DOJ as a whole um, are, are going to um, be supportive of policing. And, you know, we can't look at holding people accountable as being unsupportive, right? We, we hold our kids accountable, but yet we're supportive because we recognize if we just let them dictate, especially once they start driving, what their, uh, their return to home time is going to be, they may never return home, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so we have to have policies and procedures in place. We have to have expectations in place and we have to hold people accountable. Um, but within that, um, we have to give them the trust and the confidence and the resources um, to be able to, to deliver to the communities they serve. And, and I think that's happening. I'm, I'm optimistic. Yeah, no, I hope so as well. And I, and I did see um, a great example um, when I read a quote in the New York Times from one of the mayoral candidates who at the scene of a horrific shooting said, look, public safety is important. We need public safety and public safety means we need police. So I thought, you know, for a candidate, I think he's going out on a limb saying that in, in today's climate, but uh, it's, for me, it was, it was just great to read and I'm hoping to see more of that. So wrapping up, what, what are you working on? What could we look forward to seeing from you and the Police Foundation um, coming up in 2021? Well, we just released today um, a report on um, 170 averted school shootings. So we um, have a national database that we maintain uh, where we track both averted and completed school attacks. And um, we did an analysis of 170 averted attacks uh, that took place across the country over the past 20 years. Uh, and that report was released today by the, uh, the COPS office. Um, very, very proud of, of that report. We're doing some, uh, I think, important work around um, taking the concept of ComStat, um, you know, using stats. Um, but how do we broaden that? And how do we use the ComStat process, so to speak, um, to measure community involvement, community satisfaction? Um, how do we use it to measure training? Um, so really using it as a multi-dimensional tool that really gives us an understanding of what the impact of, of policing is on our communities. We're doing a lot of work around officer uh, mental health and wellness. Uh, we, we work very closely with the COPS office um, at DOJ and, and the Bureau of Justice Assistance um, on some programs there. Uh, my group 
um, is looking at um, extremism and the impact of extremism on targeted violence. So I think there's a lot of uh, very good projects coming out uh, of the Police Foundation. We're excited about the, the grant opportunities that, that have been announced by the Department of Justice and, and um, Department of Homeland Security. We're, we're applying for those grants and um, hopeful that you know, we can continue to follow our tradition of using science and rigor uh, to advance policing. So that, you know, we, we propose, here's a direction we should go in, and, and we propose it based on the evidence, right? Based on, on research, and research has to be actionable. Um, so in many ways, uh, we are a think and do tank. Um, we want to we want to think through these issues. We want to bring communities and um, our law enforcement partners together, and then we want to implement um, the recommendations and 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 pilot them and and hopefully um, contribute to to public safety. Well, that's awesome. And well, I'm I can't wait to read the 171 averted um, attacks because we know that. Uh, proving uh, prevention is tough to do. So that means there are probably, you know, many fold more than that, but you've got 171 that you can hang your hat on. So kudos to you for that. Thank you. And I'll make sure you get a copy of the report. I'll send it to you when we're, when we finish today. Awesome. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for spending your time with us. Uh, certainly appreciate it. Uh, Dr. Frank Straub from the um, National Police Foundation, and we'll include in our show notes some of the links to some of your other publications and your writings. Uh, really appreciate what you're doing for law enforcement today. Great. Thank you very much for having me on your show. You bet. Well, thanks to our listeners. If you're listening uh, regularly, uh, take a moment and rate us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us out. And you can get in touch with me or any of the Policing Matters team at Policing Matters at police1.com, police1one.com. Drop us a line, share your suggestions, or just say hello. Uh, let me know what you thought about today's uh, broadcast. Uh, real important work happening at the Police Foundation. And I uh, hope you take a look at some of their publications. All right, stay safe. Thanks for listening. And we'll hear from you soon. I'm Jim Dudley.